0: I want to read 1 through 10 in one setting, and then we'll focus our attention this morning on verses 6 through 10. James chapter 4, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It's not the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members, you lust and do not have so you commit murder, you're envious and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on yourselves or your pleasures, your own pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Father, as we come this morning and we listen to what James has to say to us about about the... the prescription for fixing the problem of worldliness. I pray that we would be honest enough to do a self-evaluation and allow the Word of God to be the surgeon's scalpel to pierce our hearts and to divide us and to show us where we need cleansing and healing. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you notice what James said in verse 6? James said... But he, that is God, gives a greater grace. What in the world does James mean when he says God gives a greater grace? I mean, I thought that God just gives grace. I mean, He's God and He's not partial to anyone, and so He gives grace to those who come to Him humbly and repenting and believing upon Christ. But James tells us this morning that God gives uh, some people, He gives a greater grace there is a time in some of our lives when we can actually go to the throne of God and get extra grace. Well, who gets this greater grace? Who can have an extra measure of grace from God? Well, that's what James tells us in verses 6-10, through who God gives a greater grace to. Now, again, you have to keep the context of these verses in mind. Since James began to talk about heavenly wisdom towards the end of chapter 3, He's been slowly turning our attention to the issue of worldliness. Remember that the theme of the book is given in one twenty-six and 27, where he describes what true religion is. True religion is that we're others-minded, we keep our tongue in check, and we abstain from being spotted by the world, from looking like the world, from being worldly in our actions and our activities and our thinking. Worldliness is a tremendous challenge, is it not? It's a tremendous challenge. It's always a challenge for the Christian church. When the church dwells in peaceful and prosperous setting as it does in our day, it's even a greater challenge. It's a great challenge for you and I to not be worldly. We live in Disneyland, folks. We live in Disneyland. I was folding socks yesterday yesterday. I was talking to my mother on the phone and she asked, is, is Patty at home? Or are you being Mr. Mom today? And I said, no, no, she's at home. I'm just helping out around the house. I'm folding laundry. While I'm folding laundry, I come to one of my son's socks. It's got a hole in the heel about this big in his, in his heel. Kids don't care. Parents care though, right? So I just took my fingers and stuck them in the sock and just went ahead and opened it up so I could throw it away. And it crossed my mind that there was a day when some people would come across a hole in a sock and what they do with it. They got out the needle and the thread and they darned that sock, didn't they? My wife said gas is going to have to get a lot higher before that happens in this house. <laughs> we live in Disneyland. When our socks get holes in them, we throw them away and we go to Walmart and we buy 12 more pair for $6. Right? Whenever our clothes wear out, we take them with a good will. Whatever it is, we live We live in Disneyland. And if we're not careful, we will become utterly Worldly, And it will be very hard for the world to see the difference between you and I other than the fact of where we spend our time on Sunday and maybe Wednesday. We must wage a war against the temptation to be worldly. And if we're all honest with one another this morning, we all must admit that there are times when we do not look very Christ-like. Isn't there? There are times when we look pretty worldly. There are times when we struggle with worldliness. We all struggle with worldliness, with different degrees of worldliness at different times. We all struggle with wanting the things that the world wants at times. And if we're perfectly honest, some of us might even admit that there are times when we prefer the worldly things over the godly things. If we, that were not the case, we have 193 on roll at Memorial Baptist Church, we'd have 193 in church pretty consistently that were not the case. But the truth of the matter is, is that some people struggle with it more than others. You struggle with it. Listen, I struggle with it. I struggle with worldliness. James knows that we all struggle with worldliness, and that's what he's talking about in this chapter. In verses 1 through 5, last Sunday morning, he gave us a diagnosis of the problem. He said that the problem of worldliness is not a problem of a Christian being plotted down in an environment which is temptation. The problem of worldliness is a heart not submitted to God entirely, all the time. He says that worldliness is seen in the believer by our broken relationships. How many broken relationships do you have? Who do you have a broken relationship with in the body of Christ? How many broken relationships do you have at work or in your own family? James says that broken relationships, divisions between friends and family, between Christians and local congregations, can be traced to our pursuing the selfish desires of our own hearts, to our self-justification, demanding our rights, having to have our way. The selfish desire, he says, is worldly. It shows itself in broken relationships, and therefore worldliness can be evidenced even in the church. Oh, we know that to be true, don't we? That's not all he said, though. Last week he said in verses 2 and 3 that the diagnosis of worldliness in the believer, we diagnose it by looking at the prayer life. He says that the first evidence that you're struggling with worldliness is that your prayers aren't being answered. And then he goes on, or you're not even praying. But then he says, well, wait a second. I realize that some of you are praying. And you say, but James, we're praying, but God's not answering our prayers. And he says, hold on. The problem is, is that you're praying with the wrong motive. You don't pray, you have not because you ask not, and then when you do ask, you ask with the wrong motive. You see, you've become so worldly and self-centered that you're not others-minded at all, which is what he said was genuine religion in 126 and 27. So he's really putting his finger on this diagnosis. He's really beginning to tell us what the problem is, the problem in the church, the reason why you have broken relationships. It's evidence, first of all, in a broken prayer life. So I ask you this morning, how's your prayer life? You know why we don't pray? Let me tell you why we don't pray. Because we really don't think that we need God. Because I'm going to tell you when every Christian prays. Every Christian prays when things get so bad that you know that if God doesn't come through, there's no hope. And you wonder why God allows so many turmoils in your life? He allows so many turmoils in some of our lives because it's the only way to keep us praying. When life's going good, we don't need God. We're doing all right on our own. But I'll tell you what, the moment we begin to hear the rumor that the plant might be closing, the, room, the moment that we hear, we feel the lump in our body somewhere, the moment that at 2 o'clock in the morning somebody's knocking on your door. On the night we went to bed, I'm laying there in bed, and, and, and sometimes I can, hear, I can hear my wife breathing. And sometimes I think a train could drive through my living room and I wouldn't know it. My wife wakes me up at like 11.10 and says, somebody's knocking on the door. Oh my goodness, somebody's knocking on the door? All the lights are off and we're in bed and somebody's knocking on the door? My heart sank. I didn't know what it was. Who knocks on your door when all your lights are off unless it's a catastrophe? Or in this case, your neighbor who wants to give your children s'mores. Good intentions. I ate them. Don't bring chocolate to my house for my kids because they won't get it unless you put it in their hand. Because I am worldly when it comes to chocolate. Worldliness. Evidenced in broken relationships made further evident in a broken prayer life. And then he went on to say this. He went on to say, this is a serious problem because you can't be worldly and godly They're two opposite coins. It's like being wet and dry. You can't be both. Hot or cold, Jesus would say, I'll spew you out of my mouth, be one or the other. You cannot be worldly and godly. And that leads us into our text this morning, verses 6 through 10, where James tells us, all right, you recognize you're a little worldly. Maybe you recognize you're a lot worldly. Maybe you recognize that, you know what? Your spiritual temperature is almost hypothermic level. Your soul is shivering because your spiritual thermometer has dropped below average. It's, it's not even slightly warm. Your soul is shivering. You're laying in a snow cavern covered up and you're wondering are you even going to live spiritually? You're worldly. What do you do? Or you just say, I just feel the slip coming in. What do I do to stop it? Or you just say, I've been there and I don't want to be there. How do I stop it? Well, that's what verses 6 through 10 is. Verses 6 through 10 is to tell us how to combat it. And basically, he gives us a two-fold combat plan. Number one, you combat it with grace. Number two, you combat it with obedience. That's verses 7 through 10. Or 6 through 10. I can sum it up in the great hymn. Trust and obey. When I preached my 8th sermon series on the doctrine of justification, I spent a considerable amount of time explaining to you the indicative-imperative relationship in the original language. How indicatives describe what you are. And how imperatives are commands and how it is is—it is so important that you understand that it's indicative first and command second, otherwise you have a works salvation. It is not, be holy and you will be holy. It is, you are holy, therefore be holy. An indicative describes what you are, and a command tells you, because this is what you are, go and do this. And James follows the same pattern. He talks about grace first. How do you combat worldliness? Well, the first thing that he says, the first step in defeating worldliness is recognizing that it can only be done by God's grace. Notice what he says in verse 6. But He, that is God, gives a greater grace. God's grace was the source of your conversion and His grace continues to be the source of your sanctification. And that's what our battle against worldliness is. A battle of sanctification. In these verses, James is telling us that worldliness is a real threat to our relationship with God. He's already told us that no one can be a friend of the world and a friend of God. And now he goes a step further and tells us that God is opposed to the proud. Do you see where he says that? God is opposed to the proud. The word opposed means to stand against. God stands against proud, worldly people. So we'd better take this battle that we're facing every day pretty serious, wouldn't you say? Unless, God be, unless you find yourself having God standing against you. Anyone who's been honest enough with themselves to admit battling worldliness will also admit not being able to battle worldliness back in their own strength. Who cannot say that I I tell you that I recognize, I recognize, Pastor, that I've got some wilderness in, in my life. And I've waged a war against it and I've lost. And I see it and I look in the mirror in the morning and I say, I don't like what I see. And I wage a war. And at the end of the day I say, I lost again. Who, who can't relate to that? We can all relate to it, can't we? We can all relate to something in our life. We recognize an error in our life and we hate it and we want it to change and we wish that it was gone and we and we and we we recognize it and we and we know it's wrong. I run with my dog almost every day, I run with my dog. And I know when I can let him off his leash and when I have to have him leashed. The dog in him sees a squirrel and he cares not about a beating the dog in him sees a squirrel run and something goes off in his mind that says run after the squirrel. So when I get close to the park, I leash him and I pull him tight because I know I've got to hold him down or he's gone. He doesn't care about cars. He doesn't care about the dog catcher. He doesn't care about other pedestrians. He doesn't care about me. All he has on his mind for that sole moment is, "I wonder what that thing would taste like if I caught it." <laughs> Same with a cat. So I have to know I've got to hold him down because he doesn't have it within him to keep from chasing the squirrel. You say, "Well, if he was better trained, it's still not within him. He must be trained to not do so. You cannot defeat worldliness in your own strength, because you are by nature a sinner. You get up in the morning and you say, the temptation today is you fill in the blank. And you say to yourself, I'm going to defeat it. If you go about it like that, no, you're not. No, you're not. Because it's your nature to sin. It's your nature to be self-serving. Do you know why babies cry so much? They don't just cry when they're hungry. Let's just be honest. Those of us that have raised children, sometimes babies are full and they got a clean diaper and they're not sick and they cry. You know what they're doing? They're expressing their immediate they're immediately they're expressing their sinful their sinful nature and they're crying and they're saying this yes, I want my way pick me up hold me play with me interact with me it's me it's me it's me and you know what we never change. Because our whole life is about me, me, me. You trampled on my rights. You violated my space. You took my job, my boyfriend, my grades, my this, me, 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 me. It's worldliness. What about me? What about me? Toby Keith has got a song about it. I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. I want to talk about number one. He sings about it. We listen to it. We laugh like Jean Ann is but we should cry. I laugh too. We should cry. It's not about us. It's about Him. And then you know what? It's about you. And then it's about me. I have a dear friend of mine who's with Jesus now. Her name is, her name is Mary Lee Pugh. And she said to me one day, Pastor, do you know what joy stands for? I, well, I, I thought I did, but tell me. She said it stands for Jesus first, others second, and you last. I thought that's pretty good. That's pretty biblical. You know what? You'll never defeat worldliness if it's you. Now let me tell you something. The world says that you can do it. The world says all you need is self-help. The world says all you need is confidence. The world says all you need is willpower. Willpower. Let me tell you something. If willpower could change my life, I'd be 165 pounds. Willpower will not change my life. Willpower will not change your life. The grace of God will transform you. It all begins by grace. There are those preachers today that say, just believe harder and you'll have all your answers and all your problems. And if you've got problems, it's because you don't believe hard enough. Let me tell you something. If that was true, then none of them would ever die. If that was true, then none of them would ever get sick. Then none of them would ever have a problem. But the truth of the matter is, it isn't true. It isn't true because we don't have it within ourselves to change anything. We need the grace of God. James says that God gives grace, greater grace to those who fall on Him in their weakness. James tells all of us who are falling over ourselves, fighting worldly temptations to not look within, to find the strength to defeat the worldliness that we're waging war with. He tells us to look without. Isn't that a great statement? He says in verse 6, But He gives a greater grace. Let me tell you something. God saved you by grace. And then let me tell you what He said. He said this, I have got this depository of grace up in heaven. And it's an eternal depository. And any time that you come, I'll make a deposit for you. And if you come and you say, I need a big deposit, you know what God says? I've got it covered. And you come and you say, but God, I need a huge deposit. He says, I've got it covered. But you come and you say, but I was just here yesterday and I drew out an immense amount. And He says, I've got it covered. I've got a great amount of grace for you when you come humbly to Me. Isn't that great? God doesn't ever say, I can't give you any today, running a little low. Had Hurricane Rita, had Hurricane Katrina, i got Hurricane Alpha and Beta and Gamma and all of them coming, Epsilon and Psi, they're all coming. You do have to come back later. I don't have enough grace. God says, I've got a great amount of grace. I've got more grace than you've got problems. I've got more grace than you've got sin. I've got more grace than you've got failure. If you'll humble yourself and come to me, I've got greater grace for you. What a good word from James. We've got a great grace, but the only way that we will engage the enemy and be able to win the strength is to humble ourselves and get the greater grace that God gives. He gives a greater grace, not only not only for our sin, but for our challenges, our temptations, our battles, our weaknesses. He gives a greater grace. James says, "Lean on God, call for God, beg for the grace, plead for the grace." Pound on the kingdom gate's doors. Let me tell you something. If you say to yourself, I'm struggling with worldliness and I can't seem to get the the victory, let me tell you where you begin. You begin by humbling yourself and crying out to God. Let me tell you something. I'll tell you how serious you are for the grace of God. How much time you spend seriously praying for God to give you the grace to overcome it. Listen. It works that way. You, you're, you're a boss man at work and an employee comes to you and they ask you one time for something and you really, you're really you not sure if you want. I don't know. No, not today. But they come back and 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 finally you say, you know what, you're serious about this. Yes. Let me tell you something. We need to be upon our face pounding on the gates of heaven saying, God, help me in my worldliness. Defeat this battle for me. I need a greater grace. Now Listen. You can't go to verses 7 through 10 until you understand that you go to 7 through 10 by grace first. And then we go to verses 7 through 10 and James gives us 10 imperatives. Let me tell you why I tell you why you've got to have the indicative before the imperative. Because you'll never gain the victory by just obeying the imperatives in your own strength. You cannot do it. You need great grace and then obey the, vi- and then obey the imperative. That's the second avenue of attack. First it's trust or grace and then it's obey. James says trust and obey. It's not trust only. And it's not obey only. It's trust and obey. See, we live in this, we live in this world that has this idea that just says, well, just let go and let God. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is Christ who is at work in you. The Bible says run the race. Paul says I buffet my body. Discipline myself. James says this. God's got a greater grace for the humble. He's a praise opposed to the proud. But it, listen, He gives grace to the humble. And then He says this. When you get the grace, when you get the grace, when God says, alright, you've got grace, then He gives ten commands. Here, let me give them to you real quick. Here's the ten commands. Number one, submit. Number two, resist. Number three, draw near. Number four, Cleanse your hands. Number five, purify your hearts. Number six, be miserable. Number seven, mourn. Number eight, weep. Number nine, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. And number ten, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. Now listen, He gives us the ten commandments of obedience, but they come after He says, go to God and get a great amount of grace. I'm going to sum up these ten in four statements. I'm going to sum them up in four statements. Fight, fellowship, focus, and forgive. Now, Alec Moyer, in his commentary on James, said this. In these seven, in, these, uh, in verses 7 through 10, there are no less than ten commands to obey. James does not see the indwelling Spirit as a means of instant, effortless sanctification. Let me say that again. James does not see the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a means to instant, effortless Sanctification. See, we have this kind of Holy Spirit microwave principle. Pop the Holy Spirit in, 30 seconds later, I'm ready to go. Doesn't work that way. You like baked potatoes? I like baked potatoes. But I want to tell you something. I don't like baked potatoes cooked in a microwave. Inevitably, some spot on them has been nuked too long or not long enough. You know what I like a baked potato? I like a big baked potato that's been baked in an oven slowly over a lengthy period of time. And the whole oven, a whole potato is baked all the way through. But I'm going to tell you something. If you're going to have a potato like that, number one, you've got to plan ahead. And number two, you've got to be patient. Let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit is not like a microwave. Like you just pop it in there, push a few buttons, and boom, you got it. The Holy Spirit works over a lengthy period of time and perseverance and patience. Moyer goes on to say this, In the same way that James does not see the inexhaustible supply of God's grace as sweeping us along to an effortless holiness, he knows of no such easy victory. The God who says, here is my grace to receive, my greater grace, says in the same breath, here are my commands to obey. So go and obey. Trust and obey. Again, let me give you the four directives of them. I think that he break, we can break them down into four, four F's for you. Number one, fight. Verse 7, he says fight. By the greater grace of God, verse 7 says fight. James gives two key commands. Submit and resist. Now submit to God and resist the devil. These are fighting commands. These are war commands. These are military commands. The command to submit is not, it doesn't mean relinquish, give up, surrender, wave the white flag. It's a military term that means active allegiance. This is the term that would be used for enlisting in the army. Submit to the authority of the military. Enlist in the army. Submit to God. It means that you accept His sovereign leadership over your life which may not always be joyful. Let me tell you something. I joined the army the day after I turned 17. I loved my eight years in the army. There were times of it I didn't like. My wife often reminds me of those times when I start glorifying it, thinking how good it was. And I'll tell you what, the army taught me how to be a man. The army taught me responsibility. It taught me tenacity and perseverance and leadership. It taught me toughness. But I'll tell you what—it didn't teach me tenacity, responsibility, leadership, and toughness without challenging me, pushing me to the brink of exhaustion, to my body broke down, hurting me at times. I mean, absolutely terrifying me at times. It's terrifying to jump out of an aircraft in some unknown country at two o'clock in the morning in the rain, with a hundred pounds of equipment strapped to your body. Sometimes it's terrifying. But I want to tell you something. You don't get to the greatest victory without the greatest battle. When you submit to God, it doesn't mean easy street. It doesn't mean health and wealth and prosperity. It may mean that God says, Welcome aboard. We've got a great and fierce battle ahead. Imagine the soldiers that are storming Normandy Beach, and they get to the beachfront, and they and they radio back to the general, and they say, "Hey, they're shooting at us! You've got to be kidding me! Get back on the boats and come back!" They're shooting at you. You mean you are a soldier storming a beach and the enemy shooting at you? Forget this. Of course, the enemy's shooting at you, and some of you are going to die. Take the hill. Let me tell you something. When you enlist with God, you enlist for a fight. And you know what? And sometimes in God's supremacy and sovereignty, He has a frowning providence. I'll I'll never get away from William Cooper's hymn. Frowning providence. Behind a frowning providence hides a smiling face. Listen, we know very little of frowning providences in our lifetime because we lived in the greatest time in history. We live in the freest country in the history of the world. We have freedom of religion. We have prosperity. We are rich and wealthy and healthy. But I want to tell you what, it was not always that case. Richard Cameron was a leader of the Scottish Covenanters who refused to cease meeting for worship with other dissenting Presbyterians during the persecution times of the 17th century. In 1680, he was arrested and cruelly executed. His head and hands were cut off to be paraded on the Netherbrow port in Edinburgh. But before that, they were taken in a sack to a castle dungeon where his father was incarcerated. They walked into the dungeon and they took the sack and they dumped them out and they said to the Father, Do you know them? His son's hands and hair were fair like his own. He picked them up and kissed them and said, I know them. I know them. They're my dear sons. then he said this, It is the Lord. Good is the will. Good is the will of the Lord who cannot wrong me nor mine, but he has made goodness and mercy to follow us all our days. He had learned early in his life to submit to God. What would your response have been? How can you do this? I'm incarcerated for the name of the gospel. Couldn't you protect my son? Let me tell you something, folks. There are far worse things than dying for the cause of Christ. You could live with health and wealth and prosperity and perish in hell forever. We should be willing to suffer under the sovereign hand of God and submit to the sovereign hand of God. And I want to tell you that sometimes that's not an easy thing to do. I know that. Sometimes it's not an easy thing to do. I know that for some of you. Submission to God means though that we gladly accept His sovereign will for our lives and we trust that in the end His blows will be for our good. If there is anything that is counter-worldly it is submission to God. So fight for a submitted heart. And then, after you submit to God you will be able to do what He says next. Resist the devil. And notice that what He says what will happen if you resist the devil. He will flee from you. Notice that James does not tell us to rebuke the devil. Lots of preachers today talk about how to rebuke the devil. He doesn't tell us to rebuke the devil. He tells us to resist the devil. He doesn't tell us to have a class on exorcism. He doesn't tell us to go demon hunting with our Ghostbusters equipment. He tells us to resist the devil. He simply says, resist, and he will flee. This tells us two things about our daily struggles with worldliness. First, it tells us that all Christians will struggle because Satan will come against you. Secondly, it tells us this. It tells us that the struggle that we fight is not a physical struggle purely. It is a spiritual struggle. Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus and he said, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle was not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual faces of weakness, forces of weakness, of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. How do we defeat the devil's lure to lead us into worldliness? We ask for God's grace, we submit to the will of God, and then we begin to resist the devil. Imagine a Christian girl. The gates of hell want to destroy her. But if she resists the devil, it's not that she'll escape by the skin of her teeth as modern movies would have it. If she'll resist the devil, she'll she'll just go through hell and barely escape, is what the movies would have you to say it. My Bible says that we're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. If you resist the devil, he doesn't slowly back away from you. He will flee from you. Evoke the name of Christ. Ask for the greater grace. Trust in Christ. Fight the good faith and resist the devil and he will flee from you. The second thing that James tells us is that we need fellowship. You want to fight the, the, the temptation of worldliness? You need the greater grace of God. You must fight. You must fight for the fellowship, you must fight against the temptation to give in to the devil. But you need a second thing. You need fellowship. He gives it that to us in verse eight a. He says, "Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you." What a promise! If you make an effort to be near God, He doesn't play hide and seek with you. Let me tell you something, Christian. When you find yourself struggling with sin, when you find yourself, when you find yourself drifting away from God and you think to yourself I want to be near to God I really want to be near to God and then you break your stubborn heart and you fall upon your face and you cry out for God to be near to God and you open your Bible and you come to worship and you say God are you there? God doesn't say nope I'm playing hide and seek keep looking the Bible says draw near to God and He will draw near to you James said it earlier. You have not because you ask not. Seek out God. And you say, well, how do we draw near to God? Well, God has ordained the means. We do it by Bible reading, by prayer, by worship, by communion with the saints, by kingdom work. Do you know why we read Scripture in the service? We read Scripture in the service first because we're commanded to do so. Paul said, until I come, give heed to the public reading of Scripture. And yet, many churches today don't read any Scripture. The preacher doesn't even read his text because he doesn't Preach from a text. We ought to read Scripture publicly. Some people, the only Scripture they get is the weekly reading from the pulpit of Scripture. We ought to read the Scriptures. We ought to fellowship with the saints. We need one another. We ought to worship God. We ought to have communion with the saints. If you say to yourself, I don't get that much out of church, you're not going to get anything out of heaven. Because heaven isn't going to be but an eternity of church. I don't really enjoy church that much, then you're going to be miserable in heaven. Let's just face it, you're not going to be in heaven. You say, I don't, I don't enjoy church. Well, you, you, trust me, then you don't know Jesus because Jesus said that the church is my bride. I don't like church that much. Then you don't know Jesus. i got news for you. Then you don't know Jesus. Because the bride, the groom of the bride is Christ. How do you draw near? You fight the fight of temptation and you seek out God. And that gives us our third directive. The second part of verse 8. Focus. Notice what he says in verse 8. The second part. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded. What's he mean by that double-minded? Worldly-minded and godly-minded. That's what he means. Remember what he said earlier in the text? You cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God. That's what he means, being double-minded. I want to be godly, but I'm worldly. That's what he means. So then notice what he says, though. And you think to yourself, what does he mean by this? What does he mean by this? Does he mean, does he mean I've got to be saved again? No, no, that's not what he says. He doesn't say, go and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. He doesn't say that. Remember, he's writing to believers who are struggling with double-mindedness. We all struggle with double-mindedness. Let's not be so pompous and arrogant to think to ourselves, well, I don't. Well, I don't. Certainly you do. You're struggling with pride right now and ignorance. You do. Now, your struggle may not be the same as my struggle. And I want to tell you something. Everybody's struggles are different, and they typically have to do with our age. I mean, when you're a child, your worldly-mindedness is, how much candy am I going to get at the celebration of the Reformation? Right? When you're a teenager, your double-mindedness is, I want a car, not that one. Right? And when you get out of college, your, 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 your worldly-mindedness is, I deserve more money after four years of that. Then you get married and your double-mindedness is, I didn't... Listen, listen. We're talking today, we're walking. The big thing in our house is Jeeves, you know. Hey, shut that door, Jeeves doesn't live here. The other day my son said to me, I wish he did live here. You know what I have Jeeves do? I said, Yeah, I thought that too. That's why I got married. Let me tell you something. I didn't marry Jeeves either. Let me tell you something. As you grow older, you don't change from your worldliness. You just change for what you want in the world. You get to be retirement age, and your worldliness surrounds. What are you going to do with your time? I worked all my life; it's my time. Well, I'll tell you what you can do: you can retire, move down to the beach, and spend your last twenty-five years picking up seashells, and see what Jesus says to you at the end of your race. Worldliness—you got to focus so that you are not double-minded. <clears throat> so, what do we do here? We all struggle with double-mindedness. What do we do when He says, "Cleanse your hands, you sinners"? Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I get the idea of what he says is this. You've been out in the world all day long. You've been walking on dusty roads. You come into the house. You don't need a bath. You need your feet washed. You need your hands washed. You're clean other than that. You get out of the shower. You get dressed. You go in the kitchen. You start making supper. You grab a hold of that raw chicken. You start cutting it up. You don't grab a hold of raw chicken and put it in the pot to cook and then grab a hold of a head of lettuce and break it up without doing what? Without washing your hands first. You don't got to go take a shower again because your whole body getting dirty, but your hands are contaminated. Wash your hands before you grab that salad. Let me tell you what I think that James is saying to us. We need to have our hands washed daily. And we need our feet washed daily. And we need our hearts purified daily so that we're not double-minded daily. That's what James is telling us. The Proverbs know about it. The writer of the Proverbs knows about it. How many of you have said to yourself, but I've gone to God with this sin so many times he'll not hear I mean I've been to God once, twice, three times, sometimes four times in the same day, and God doesn't hear. The writer of Proverbs knew your struggle. He knows my struggle. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter twenty four, verse sixteen, For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in a time of calamity. Seven times and rises again. He doesn't mean it's just seven times and that's the end of it. Peter thought that. If I forgive my brother seven times. No no no. No no, that's not it. If I forgive him if I forgive him more than what's no no, that's not it. My Bible says that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what James means by being focused. That's what he means. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, my goodness, what that means is, is that where, where, where sin abounds, uh, all, all the more grace. I can just sin, 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 but that's not what it means at all. That's not what it means. The cross of Christ cleanses us from all of our past and all of our present and all of our future sins. And when we have really experienced the cross of Christ, we will wage war against how much future sin we have. Every day we receive cleansing in Jesus' name. Don't stop. Never stop confessing your sin. Never doubt that God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness, though you've gone to Him countless times at the same thing, a thousand times. When you come and you confess, He cleanses you of your sin. Are you a sinner? Are you a double-minded man? Do you sing things like this? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Then wash your hands, you sinner. Purify your heart, you double-minded. The only Christians there are are sinners cleansed by the mercy of Christ alone. That's all there are cleansed by the grace of God. James tells us to fight, to fellowship, to focus, and finally he tells us in verses 9 and 10 to forgive. James tells us to seek out forgiveness from God with a broken and contrite heart. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, Be miserable and mourn, and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now what is he? Some big killjoy? It's sinful to laugh. Not at all. It's sinful to have joy. Not at all. You've got to keep it in the context. The context is this. The context is, is that you are struggling with worldliness. You have broken relationships. You're misusing your tongue. You're ungodly in your behavior and your activities. And so what does James say? James says this. Well, I'll tell you what you got to do is you've got to refocus and you've got to seek forgiveness. You've got to be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. That's what he's saying. You ever felt the gulf that exists between what you sing and what you actually feel? You ever felt that gulf? We sing, I pour, I pour contempt on all my pride. Do you? We sing that grace saved a wretch like me. Do you see yourself as a wretch? Most of us see ourselves as better than a wretch. We sing sinful singing to the blessed. I'm all unrighteous, vile, and full of sin am I. Beneath the cross of Jesus of the wonder of my own worthlessness but yet few people admit how worthless they are outside of Christ. You know, my Bible doesn't say that you you can't come to Christ except by grace, but everything else you can do in your own strength. My Bible says, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do... No, you can do some things because we try all the time. No, we can do nothing apart from Him. Of the people who are described in the Bible as coming to true and genuine faith, it describes them like this. The publishing of the temple would not look up to heaven, but he smote his breast and he cried out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. The 3,000 that were converted on the day of Pentecost were all, the Bible says, cut to the heart at what they had heard. And they cried out in their loud anguish, What shall we do? The Apostle Paul tells us that he believes himself to be a wretched man and the chief of sinners. And this is post-conversion. Struggling with worldliness? Wage a war. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Have fellowship with God. Draw near to Him and He'll draw near to you. Focus, focus on what's really important and then weep and mourn for your sin and seek out forgiveness. Notice what he says in verse 10 as we close. Verse 10, he says this. Notice, I want you to notice that 6 and 10 end the same way. Look at 6 first. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, He says, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Do you see that? He gives grace to the humble. In verse 6, do you see that? Now look at verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. See, He begins and ends this little section with humility. Humble yourself and God will exalt you. See, Christianity is counter to our culture. Our culture says, make yourself big. Christianity says, make yourself small. Our culture says, set at the head of the table. Christianity says, never sit at the head of the table. Our culture says, pat yourself on the back. Christianity says, pat others on the back. Our, cult- our culture says, look out for number one. And Christianity says, look out for others before you look out for number one. James said this for those of us that are struggling with worldliness. If we will humble ourselves, God will exalt us. Painfully, if we will be painfully honest with God and cry out for His mercy and His grace, He will exalt us. He'll lift us up. He'll sustain us and give us life, a life of joy everlasting. Do you know the everlasting joy of Christ? It comes by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing. And it's a hymn of benediction, not invitation. I don't say that because I'm not inviting you. I say that to say this. If you need to speak with me about coming to faith in Christ, then it doesn't need to be in the front while we're singing one or two stanzas of a hymn. It needs to be in private where we'll not be rushed or interrupted or pressured. So when we sing this hymn of benediction... Although the formal part of this service is over, we're not through if God's working with you. When we dismiss, you wait and see me, and we'll set up a time of inquiry, and we'll find out what the Spirit is doing in your life. Don't feel as though because we don't invite you to come and do something to the front when we sing that we're not inviting you to come. We are inviting you to come, but we're saying, let's not rush it. You come forward and let's have a time of inquiry where we can genuinely probe into what God is doing in your life. Let's pray.